0: chapter 1 verse 1 this is the first division and this is the first return under shes bazar and zerubbabel it is 539 bc it is the first year of cyrus as emperor of the persian empire after conquering the babylonians and in that late part of the year he gives an edict for them to return and it is these two men and a third man by the name of Joshua who will be largely responsible for leading these, this first wave of Jews back to the promised land. The first two chapters just largely record them returning and this huge list of the kind of people who returned and what they returned with. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, In order to fulfill Yahweh's message spoken through Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred the mind of King Cyrus of Persia. He disseminated a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom, announcing in a written edict following, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, Yahweh God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has instructed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Anyone from his people among you, may his God be with him, may go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and may build the temple of Yahweh, God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Anyone who survives in any of these places, where he is a resident foreigner, must be helped by his neighbors with silver, gold, equipment, and animals, along with voluntary offerings for the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem. Cyrus gives an edict. The first thing it says is according to the word of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 12 through 14 and then 29 verses 10 through 14 basically said after 70 years the Jews will return back to the land. Isaiah also 45, Isaiah also said it would be Cyrus II who would give this edict. He is one of the only people that is named by personally named by God way before He was ever born to come in the future and do something when you read this it makes it clear that this is Yahweh's will and this is Yahweh's will being executed as proclaimed by Jeremiah and God is making this happen but when you read Cyrus's edict it sounds all like it's him And it really sounds like he's this believer in Yahweh. He's proclaiming that Yahweh is the God of the heaven. And that he has given me the kingdoms, as if he's acknowledging his submission to Yahweh. But notice this, he says, he is the God in Jerusalem. There's no way a true believer in Yahweh would say the God in Jerusalem. Every time we ever saw the Jews talk about Yahweh, they would say he is the God of the heavens and the earth, meaning all of creation. The other thing is that when you read Cyrus' edict in the Persian edicts, not in the Bible, it's very clear that he's not a believer in Yahweh. He basically was a different kind of a king. He believed that if you were good to the people, the people would be good to you. The previous kings were all about domination and oppression in order to ensure people's obedience through fear. But Cyrus believed in supporting the people. And so when Cyrus became king, he abolished all slavery and his empire. And he allowed for freedom of religion, of all religions. And he allowed for all people to return back to their original lands in that anybody who was living in that land that people were returning to had to make space for them to come back to their land and the people that they were leaving to return to their land had to financially support them in some kind of way to get there and it was really his attempt to kind of restore what the Assyrians had kind of snow globed as they shook the world through their their deportations and their scatterings to restore this By allowing people now, not only that, it was the Babylonians and Syrians that took all the idols and all the temple articles and holy relics of every single temple and every single religion of every single nation that they encountered, and they claimed them as their own as trophies and put them in their temples. And we saw this with um, basically the end of Kings and the beginning of Daniel where it said that God gave the articles of the temple to Nebuchadnezzar and he placed them in his own temple. Cyrus allowed everybody to return with their own articles and their own idols. Now, obviously, Israel has no idol to take back with them, but they do have all the utensils from the temple to take back. And so he allowed them to go back, and he's actually going to fund financially the rebuilding of the temple. He didn't do this because he actually was loyal to Yahweh. He did this for all people of all religions of all nations because he really believed that if he allowed the original temples of Marduk and Baal and Ra and Yahweh and, and, and all these different gods to be restored, then those gods would bless him. And if they blessed him, then he would have more success in those regions. And it was kind of more of like, I will build your temple for you, gods, and in return you will bless me. And that is the way the ancients thought about the gods all the time. You do for the gods, so they do for you. And the gods do for you, so that you do for them, and it was this symbiotic kind of relationship where both needed each other in a kind of codependency kind of a way, according to John Bright. he says this: Cyrus was one of the truly enlightened rulers of the ancient times, instead of crushing national sentiment by brutally in deportation with by brutality. Deportation, as the Assyrians had, it was his aim to allow subject peoples as far as possible to enjoy cultural autonomy within the framework of the empire. Though he and his successors kept firm control through a complex bureaucracy, most of high officials, of which were Persians or Medes, through their army and through an efficient system of communications, their rule was not harsh. Rather, they preferred to respect the customs of their subjects to protect and foster their established cults and where they could to entrust responsibility to the native princes. So this is what he's hoping for as he funds all this. There's a very strong Exodus theme and flavor here as we look at this. Because what you have during the Exodus is that they're under a a pagan king in a foreign land And they're led out by a prophetic spiritual leader, Moses. And they're led out of that land back to the promised land. And remember in the Exodus, God compelled all the Egyptians to give all their money to the Jews so that they could leave with the wealth of Egypt. And then when they left Egypt, with the wealth of Egypt, they went into the wilderness and they took that money and they built a tabernacle to God to in- implement the sacrificial system. And we have that same idea here. We have a pagan king, Cyrus, who's allowing the people to leave this foreign land under the leadership of Sheshbazzar and Zerubbabel. And all the people from the Persian Empire around them are funding their return and they're going back into a different land where they're going to use this money to rebuild the temple there's this theme is even more precise because when they first got in the wilderness, before they' be rebuilt the temple, they actually took the money that God gave them and they built a golden calf and a rebellion to God and Then, when God kind of like ripped them a new one, they took the money and they built the tabernacle we're going to see the same thing they're going to start building the temple and then they're going to get distracted with the oppression of the neighboring people. And then they're going to do a whole lot of home and garden network watching and DIY. And they're going to take that money and start like flipping their houses and putting cedar panels on everything and making everything look better. And meanwhile, the temple is not built yet. And so that's kind of like their new version of the golden calf, so to speak. This is what they're going to do. So we see a very strong Exodus theme here. This also means, and we're going to see other evidences of this, but this also means that these aren't poor Jews. The people in the land of Judah are poor. But the people that are coming back are incredibly wealthy and affluential. They got lots of money. And that kind of makes sense to a certain extent that because this is a 900-mile journey. And that's expensive during that time period. You only can do about 25 miles a day. This is a long, this is going to be a couple weeks' journey as they make their way back with lots of expenses through a desert territory. And there's going to require a lot of money to make this journey. So most of the wealthy, and remember, there was the wealthy were taken off into exile to begin with. A lot of this is old money, and they've been given even more money by the surrounding neighbors that they left from. Verse 5, Then the leaders of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests of the Levites, all those whose mind God has stirred got ready to go up in order to build the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with silver utensils and gold equipment, animals, expensive gifts, not to mention all the voluntary offerings. Notice that there are three tribes primarily mentioned here. Judah, Benjamin, and then the Levites, the priests. As we go through the list of names, there's other tribes that are actually involved in the return. But remember, before the exile, Judah was predominantly Levites, Judeans, and, um, or Judahites, and Benjamites. There were lots of godly people who had left Israel when Israel became more and more pagan during the, before the Assyrians came, and they moved to Judah. But Judah was largely Judaites, Benjamites, and Levites. It makes sense that they dominate the numbers as they return back to the land of Judah. And so not only did their neighbors give them things, but they themselves, among themselves, took up a voluntary offering. And so the idea is that this offering is going to be used first and foremost for the rebuilding of the temple, and then for all the other expenses that are going to be involved in restoring the land. Verse 7, Then King Cyrus brought all the vessels of Yahweh's temple, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought from Jerusalem, and displayed in the temple of his gods, and King Cyrus of Persia entrusted them to Merithrithdath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shashabazars, the leader of the Judea exiles. The inventory of these items was as follows 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver utensils, 30 golden bowls, 410 other silver bowls, and 1,000 other vessels. All these gold and silver vessels totaled 5,400. Sheshbazzar brought them all along with the captives were brought up from the Babylonian Babylon to Jerusalem. So these are all the relics and the holy vessels that had been taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. And knows that it said that God gave these to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And then now God is moving Cyrus to allow them to be taken back. There are some scholars who think that Sheshbazzar. And Zerubbabel are the same men. Because what's really weird here is that the story begins with Shes-Bazar, and then he kind of just disappears, and then Zerubbabel kind of pops up. And there's no explanation of where the first guy went and where the world the second guy came from. And this has led some people to assume that these are the same guy, just with different names, which is not uncommon for people to have different names in the Bible. We've seen that a lot. However, this has strongly been rejected by many, many scholars. That was like an old school kind of an idea. But with newer archaeological discoveries and that kind of stuff, it's very clear that these guys are not the same. Shesh Bazar is most likely was an official who was put into place and power by the Persians. And so he is an official Persian governor who is representing the Persians as a return. He is a direct descendant of David. He is in the Judean line of kings. And he can trace his lineage back to Jehoiachin, the last reigning king of Israel. Now, technically, he was the second to last, and then he was replaced by Zedekiah. But Zedekiah was killed, and Jehoiachin was still in prison in um, Babylon. And then Amil Marduk the son of Nebuchadnezzar let him out of prison and put him at his banquet table and treated him as an equal this is his great great grandson and how he is a governor leading them back most likely Zerubbabel is his nephew and we see this from 1st Chronicles chapter 3 verses 17 through 19 that labels Zerubbabel as a nephew and so these are two different people so, in that sense, it's basically going from uncle to nephew of the governorship powers they return. So, sometime after they return and the temple started being built, the uncle died, and Zerubbabel, the nephew, naturally took over and continued his efforts as a governor. You can see their influence here because Zerubbabel is from the, Greek, or the, the, the Canaanite god Bel, which was basically a Babylonian version of Baal. And so you see that influence, his name. Now, nothing in here soon suggests that he's a pagan worshiping pagan gods. However, it was not uncommon for them to take these names because of the culture they lived in. And these new names started coming into their vocabulary. And even Joshua, who's the high priest, who can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest ever, the brother of Moses during the Exodus, his name is Joshua. Now, Joshua is the um, the Hebrew name, and so you see this Hebrew names and these pagan names that are starting to become mixed together and acceptable in this culture. And you can't read too much into people having pagan names, because Jesus himself is going to have a pagan name, because Jesus is the Greek Hellenized version of Joshua. And so his name is very Greek, and they would have never had that name if the Jews hadn't embraced Hellenism into their culture. That would... You would have to say something about Jesus if you're going to read too much into names. One time you could read into names, but at this time period, they've been so mixed with so many different cultures and scattered in so many places and lived in a foreign land for so much that names are starting to just now be cultural things like they are in our culture. We name people based on cultural norms rather than this has a true meaning to it. The inventory of the temple articles does not add up. And this is one thing that scholars throw at us all the time. Like, look at these numbers. If you actually do the mathematical number crunching on these numbers, it totals to 2,499 items. But the narrator says it was or 5,400. And so a lot of people are like, see, your Bible is so messed up they can't even get the numbers right. Now, here's the problem. This is not difficult math. And it's very unlikely the narrator just is like, A ding-dong in math. It's like, well, I'm sorry, I failed math, so I just kind of guess. It's not very likely at all. Most likely, he has numbered the most important major articles in the temple, and then there's a miscellaneous category that he has added to that. So the total of these items is 2,490, plus a whole bunch of miscellaneous items that are not worth mentioning, like every spoon and every fork and every thread, that kind of stuff. That total is 5,400. So a lot of this is just like, it's the same thing we do. Okay? When, when we do things, we have a miscellaneous category for um, packing for things or doing finances or whatever. And it's so interesting that they'll throw all these things at the Bible and say, duh, duh, see, you can't trust it. And it's like, but you do that in your life too. Like, this is just common human practices. Like, just slow down, think about your life before you throw out the stupid accusation. Of course, they can do that because there's tons of ding-dongs on the internet that they'll buy into it. So don't let that throw you off. And remember, too, they're not like they got out of the calculator doing this kind of stuff. I mean, remember, this is the ancient world. They don't have computers and that kind of stuff. And precise numbering is not important to them. And I've already talked about this multiple times. For most people, too, precise numbering is not important. Like, even the amount of people that show up tonight, like, people are like, well, how many people show up? And I'm like, well, I think it's around 20, but I'm not really counting. One, because I've got other things going on in my mind. And two, it's not like I'm finding my self-worth an identity and how many people show up at, on this. Now, if there's only two of you, I might be a little depressed. But, <laughs> uh, so, but precise number counting is not always important. Chapter 2, verse 1. These are the people of the Providence who were going up from the captives of the exile, whom Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had forced into exile into Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem, Judah, each to his own city. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, or Joshua, Nehemiah, that's a different Nehemiah than the book of Nehemiah, Syria, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Raham, and Ba'ana. The number of the Israelites was as following. Now, I'm not going to read all this off. So as you look at these numbers, the main thing that we're going to point out here is that the priests, the Levites, make up about a tenth of those who are returning to the land. When you crunch all the numbers, the Levites are about a tenth of that population, which is pretty common with what we kind of seen that they were before the exile As well, So this suggests that population growth hasn't really decreased that much during the time of the exile. In fact, Jeremiah told them that when they go into exile, build houses, put roots down, marry, have kids, because you're going to be there for a long time. And so go on with life, basically. And this listing and these numbers suggest that they did go on with life. And they continued to multiply, rather than putting life on hold, expecting to return. So then it lists all these names going through verses 54. These are called the nethanium. These are This word is called the Dedicated. And this group of verses 43 through 54 is a group founded by David before the exile. David put together a group of assistants to the Levites. The Levites weren't numerous enough to handle all the requirements of the temple, with how many people were living in Israel during the time of David. So, David put a group of people together called the dedicated that were not necessarily Levitical people who could actually do sacrifices and attend to the temple, but they could assist the Levites in some kind of other secondary function to alleviate them from all that miscellaneous, uh, extr- extraneous things. That would keep them from doing their sacrifices and tending to the temple in a a good way or the tabernacle in a functional way. And so this seems to be that group. So verses 39 through 42 are the priesthood. And then 43 through 54 is this dedicated group that David put together in order to aid the priests. And then verses 55 through 58 is a group of servants that is also closely associated with this group called the dedicated. And this seems to be a group that Solomon put together in order to help the dedicated group that was helping the Levites. And so basically these first 58 verses is basically the priesthood and all their assistants coming back. And that's significant too because the priesthood is who led Israel first into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And this suggests that there's a holy dimension to this return. This is not people just returning back to the land to reestablish their homes. This is a holy venture with spiritual purpose to it, to bring back people to the land. Verses 59 through 60, these people were Jewish people who could not prove their Jewish ethnicity. So Jewish ethnicity was very important to this returning group. And only Jewish people with full-blooded ethnicity could actually enter into the temple unless they had proven themselves to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. These people, they can't prove they're actually 100% Jewish or partly Jewish through a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. And because genealogies are super important to these people, if you don't have some genealogical record to prove who you are, then we don't know if you're really Jewish. Now, technically speaking, God doesn't really care. As long as you had faith and you had committed yourself to the Abrahamic covenant, that's all that mattered. Yet for these people, this was super important. Later, we're going to find out that they will be able to prove their Jewish ethnicity as they return to the land. Because most likely what's going to happen is that they return back to Judah. There's going to be a bunch of Jews that are still there. And so when they go there, they're going to be like, hey, Uncle Barkach, like, do you remember me? He's like, yes, I remember you. You are my nephew. And they're like, see, told you. So there's going to be some of that's going to be happen. I don't have a genealogical record, but this old man remembers me. That's going to be kind of the idea of how they're going to prove their ethnicity. So some of these people might be returning just because they want to meet grandpa or uncle in order to say, yes, you are a Jew, so that they'll be a real Jew. That's kind of the idea here. Then verses 61 through 63, these are the people who had unconfirmed claims to the priesthood. So they were claiming that they were legitimate descendants of the Levites and had a right to be priests but they couldn't prove it with their records. So they're hoping to go back to Israel and find somebody who can validate that they're truly part of the priesthood. Once again, there's a mathematical problem here. If you add up all the families in this list, it totals 29,818 people. But the final total is 49,897. Most likely, The number that the narrator is giving, the 29,818, does not count men, women, and children. And so when you add them in, that gives you 49,897. And that shouldn't be suspicious in any kind of way, because that's a very common thing that is done in the Bible and in other documents outside the Bible. In fact, when they came out of Egypt and they were going through the wilderness in the book of Numbers, They count all the people, and it literally says that this is only the men over age 21 who are physically capable of fighting. So it did not include young men under 21, and it did not include the older men that could not fight, and it did not include women and children. And so this is not an uncommon thing as we've gone through the Bible. There's only two major distinctions that are really made in this listing there's the priesthood and their assistants and then everybody else and what's interesting is the narrator makes no attempt to distinguish the individual tribes in the book of numbers each tribe population count is individually listed out separate from all the other tribes And God puts a huge emphasis On these individual tribes. Now there's a reason for that because in the book of Numbers what God is doing is they're wandering through the wilderness and one he's trying to show you that the book of Exodus or the book of Genesis ends and the book of Exodus begins with the the sons of Jacob going into Egypt and then being enslaved. And the idea is that if they're enslaved in a land that is not their own, and there's only 70 of them total, men, women, and children, then God has failed to honor his promises to Abraham to make them a great nation. 70 people is not a great nation. Being in a foreign land is not the land that he promised them. And being enslaved is not being a great nation either, and it's not a whole lot of, I'm personally blessed. They go in, 70 people in exile. When they come out, they come out an uncountable number. We're told that they swarmed the land. That's the Hebrew word that is used, swarming. And what God is doing by listing the tribes individually, he's showing you that the sons that went in are the sons that are coming out. And their numbers have gone from 1 to 75,000, 45,000, 54,000. And it's showing that I truly have honored my promises to make them a great nation. And not one of the sons of Jacob was lost during all those years of slavery. Not only that, he specifically organizes them around the tabernacle, three tribes on each side, with the Levites on all four sides. And by arranging them that in a specific order, he's showing unity that they're not separate tribes warring with each other, that they're one unified tribal people that are centered around the same tabernacle and the same God working together as a well-oiled machine as they pick up and set down, pick up and sit down as they move through the desert. And what God is showing is His fulfillment of His promises and the unity of the people and the numbers and the blessings that He's given them. That's important. But... As time goes on, what happens is the nation begins to divide. First they divide east and west because some of the tribes say that we want to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River and some want to settle on the western side. That happens at the end of Numbers and going to Joshua. That begins to create a national division between them. Because it's hard to be unified when you have a giant rift valley between the two of you. Just like it's hard to really be close friends with people if they move off to California. And after about 10 years or so, you're just not as close as you used to be despite modern day technology. Then another division is going to happen. As the people of Judah start becoming kings, they're going to emphasize Judah more than the other tribes, and Jews are going to get more privileges, and there's going to become a division between the northern part of Jerusalem and then Jerusalem and south. And so you're going to start seeing a political division there. The east and west division is geography, just losing connection with each other. The north and south division is going to be like Democrat-Republican political division and favoritism and all that kind of stuff. So that when they're taken off in exile, there's tons of politics involved here. There's animosity towards each other. There's superiority complexes. This is you did this, and oh no, you did this kind of stuff. And what's interesting is that the narrator's intentionally not listing the individual tribes here, like it was in Numbers, in order to show that there is no more Israel and Judah. There's just the people of God. And the idea is that God doesn't want you to see any distinctions anymore because those distinctions led to conflict. And God's greatest desire for us is unity. The only prayer of Jesus that is recorded in the Bible is him praying that we be unified with each other and with the Father like the Father and the Son are unified with each other. What the narrator is trying to show is that there's a great number here. It also shows there's this extreme wealth that's coming back as the money is listed. And the families are listed are affluential families, meaning that their greatest desire is to use its wealth to rebuild the temple. Now, right now, you're like, yay, everything's awesome. But when the temple gets put on hold, then all that wealth and all those people should be a reminder in the back of your mind they have no excuse. They have no excuse to not be able to finish this temple. No excuse at all. So this is the return.